0: Well, it is great to be back at Second Presbyterian. I'll have you know, as soon as I arrived on campus a few days ago, several of you were quick to remind me that you had changed my dirty diapers (laughs) 41 years ago in the nursery down the hall. So I think it was at that moment I realized I'm home. But uh, it is good to be back, and you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter eight. We'll be looking at the latter half of the chapter, and it's a longer passage, but it's nice to look at it all together to see the thought flow of what Mark is saying. And as you open to Mark 8, I'll just begin with this, that darkness can be blinding and lead to great confusion. It's a true story. Southwest Flight 4013 landed at the wrong airport. Do you remember this in the news a few years ago? The story goes like this. The plane had been cleared to land. It did land safely. It stopped on the tarmac, and then suddenly the pilot radios to air traffic control um, I think I might have landed at the wrong airport. There's kind of a moment of silence. And then sudden panic, air traffic control says, flight 4013, flight 4013, have you landed? Have you landed? We don't see you, we don't see you. And there's some back and forth between air traffic control and the pilot. Then uh, the air traffic control in Branson, Missouri, radios the nearby control tower at a regional airport and confirms, sure enough, a large passenger jet has landed in the wrong place. Well, as it turns out, the pilots attempted a night landing by sight rather than using their instruments. Oopsie daisies. Well, they attempted this night landing by sight, and not only did they end up at the wrong airport, the runway on which they landed was half the length it should have been. It was a dangerous mistake. Darkness can be blinding and lead to great confusion. In our passage this morning in Mark 8, what we're about to see is that the spiritual darkness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and get this, even Jesus' own disciples, was also blinding and led to a whole lot of confusion. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you might recall that in Mark chapter 6, Jesus uh, fed, He used a little bit of bread, and he fed 5,000 people. In case you were a bit slow to get it, he used bread and fed 4,000 people after that, did the same miracle again. In Mark 8, we find the disciples in a boat, and somebody realizes that they had forgotten bread. They start to panic. They kind of freak out. And at this point, Jesus is understandably a bit upset, and you'll notice in verse verse 21 of Mark 8, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand? And it's interesting that right after this account, Mark then tells the story of a blind man who receives his sight. And while it is a historical account, it's true, it really did happen, we also know that Mark is probably also using this true story to give us a larger symbolic picture of spiritual blindness. Mark's going to make clear what is very, very obvious. Blind people Don't get to Jesus on their own. Somebody's got to bring them. And that's what Mark 8, I believe, is all about. So before we read the passage together, let's take a moment and pray. Well, Father, our prayer this morning is simple. We long to be a significant part of your great mission to the world. And so we ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would open our eyes. And we pray, O Lord, speak for your servants. Listen, amen. This is Mark 8, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Don't even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I want us to consider four things from this passage about the mission of God. So if you're in the outlines, this is it. The people, the process, the purpose, and the pain of mission. The people, the process, the purpose, and the pain of mission. First, we'll look at the people of mission, and we'll see that in verse 22. So I'll read that again. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And we just want to note two things about these people. And the first is that they're lay people. They're lay people. I say that because we're not given their names Which means they were probably just ordinary commoners, not professionally trained evangelists or rabbis with more formal theological training. These were just ordinary folks. Some of you are familiar with the name of uh, Dr. James Kennedy down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. In 1962, he had a small little church that was about 17 people, and he was doing everything imaginable to grow this church. And I mean, he tried everything. But it just wasn't happening, and as he recalls the story, he says, you know, there was a point where I just realized I had two and a half more months of ministry before I was preaching to only my wife, and she was threatening to go to the Baptist church down the street. (laughs) So he realized these were tough times. He had to do something, and so he started a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you have heard of it, and the goal was to train up lay people to do the work of Christian ministry. And as the story goes, in a 12-year period, his church went from only 17 people to well over 2,000. You can find it, it's called uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian down in Fort Lauderdale. And his ministry, Evangelism Explosion, expanded all over the world and continues today, training up ordinary people like you and me to do the work of Christian ministry. And so, near the end of his life, some people had gathered around Dr. Kennedy and they said, you know, what was the biblical inspiration for this great ministry? That you have begun, expecting him to say, you know, John 3 16, for God so loved the world, or Matthew 28, go and make disciples. And he said, Well, the the answer is easy. It was Acts 8, verse 1. And they said, Oh, that one, that one. And uh, surely they did not know what he was talking about, so he read it. And it goes like this: Acts 8, verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the people gathered around Dr. Kennedy were not too sure what his point was. And so he said, You know, you got to notice this phrase, except the apostles. And he just read it again. And there arose a great persecution against the church. And Dr. Kennedy said, Notice the lay people, the lay people were scattered throughout the towns of Judea and Samaria and the larger Greco-Roman world. They were gospeling the gospel. They were going from town to town and village to village and just talking about this Jesus. And notice who was left behind in Jerusalem, the professionals, the people who had been trained by Jesus personally. And Dr. Kennedy's point was that the very beginning of Christian mission, as we know it, was in large part a lay movement. Now, it wasn't exclusively lay, but it was in large part a lay movement. And I simply mention that because to this day, the modern Christian movement in 2022 continues to be in large part a lay movement. This weekend, as you can see from our theme, I hope we have a moment to reconnect with one another. And I also hope you have a moment to reimagine all the ways that God is working around the world through your partners. And what you'll find is not only are your partners busy making converts, as important as that is, They're extremely busy and spending a lot of their time making students of Jesus, ordinary people, lay people, who are doing the work of Christian ministry. Because what you'll find is if you don't do that, when the foreign missionaries pull out of a country, the ministry won't last long if you haven't trained the lay people. And so what we see in uh, in Mark 8, verse 22, are the very seeds of mission, these lay people involved. And secondly, we can notice that they're partnering people they're partnering people. When we think of missional partnerships at this church, we are very, very fortunate. We have well over 60 partners. We have, I think, nearly 11 or 12 uh, key strategic partnerships working with um, indigenous movements. So this is a partnering church, and that's what I love about Second. Now, in Mark 8, 22, this is more a uh, simple partnership in its rudimentary form. These were probably just friends of the blind man who decided, you know, let's just take him to go meet Jesus but good gospel partnerships, come out of a healthy recognition that there is no one missionary, no one sending church, no one mission organization that has all the gifts needed to effectively reach the world for Jesus. And so we need each other. That's why missionaries work on teams. It's why we partner with indigenous local people. It's why we partner with churches when they're willing. My wife and I are in Taiwan. Uh, We actually, I'm a Presbyterian minister, we partnered with the Baptist Church for well over 10 years to get the gospel out into an unreached area. We're partnering people, and there's no better example perhaps than Paul himself. If you read the letter to the Romans and you see this beautiful letter of the gospel, you get to the very end, chapter 16, and it's just a long list of names. It's probably that part of the Bible you tend to skip over, but those are the partners, Those were the people that worked side by side with Paul and coming and going throughout his ministry. And what's amazing is God knows every single partner and he has listed them down by name in your Bible. We're partnering people. So these are the people of mission. They are lay people and they're partnering and working together to bring the blind to Jesus. But secondly, we've seen not only the people, I want us to notice the process. These people are doing something. They're engaged in a process. I'll read verses 23 through 26 again. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. You know, unlike the religious leaders of his day who would go way out of their way to avoid sick and defiled people for fear of ceremonial defilement, Jesus, uh, by contrast, takes the blind man by the hand and touches him and proceeds to lay his hand on him, uh, spits on his eyes. And this, you've got to realize, was unheard of for a rabbi. Now, this is the only miracle in the Gospels where the intended result doesn't happen instantly. And I can assure you it's not because Jesus forgot to swing by Gibson's donuts off Poplar to get his sugar rush. It wasn't because he didn't drink a Red Bull. Uh, This is highly intentional. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because, again, the story in Mark's gospel functions symbolically to also teach us that God's mission to the world is a process that, generally speaking, is going to take a lot of time. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, In Taiwan, when we first... uh, share uh, about Jesus with someone, and they first encounter Christ, especially if they haven't been brought up in the church, they don't fully understand Jesus. And so, to quote Mark, they kind of see like trees walking. Now, in Taiwanese, we call that busasa. So do me a favor this morning, turn to the person next to you, and with a big smile on your face, say, busasa. Well, I'm afraid your tones are a bit off, but I guess we're in church. I'll be gracious but it means confused and muddled, busasa. These are people who are beginning to hear the gospel, but because of their old worldviews, they're still, they have questions, they have doubts, they're, you know, not quite sure about all this, but over time as you, the missionary, are sharing the gospel and loving them and serving them and inviting to their home and cooking good meals, they slowly begin to have eyes that see. And the point is this, international mission takes time. Working-class ministry in rural Taiwan, where I live, is a slow process. We went there over 10 years ago, and it took 10 years to get a small little church going. Consider this. Jesus, who was the best teacher in the whole world, who also happened to be the Son of God, had disciples that were really slow to get it. I mean, that's just amazing if you think about it. And that's the way it is with hard hearts. If it was true for Jesus, it's going to be true for us. And a number of you have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh minister who was also a medical doctor, and I always love his writings. He's written a lot on this passage. And he writes, you know, for the blind person who is beginning to receive his sight, there are two great temptations, two great temptations uh, to help us understand why discipleship is such a long process in mission. And he said the first temptation is to prematurely believe that your blindness is cured. So you kind of hear the gospel and then you think, okay, I got this thing down. I got this Christianity thing. Even though perhaps you haven't fully left your old worldview behind. And I'll give you two examples. About a year ago, I got a phone call at our house. And uh, it was one of the ladies we invested in for many years. And her mother-in-law had passed away. And she said, Thomas, could you come to church and pray for me? And I said, of course, of course. And then she said, but I've got a special request. Now, after you've been in Taiwan for a while, if you start getting special requests, you know you're in trouble. So she said, well, my mother-in-law is in the gates of hell. She's down there. It's hot down there. And pastor, I need you to get her out. And I looked at my wife and I said, it's going to be a long day. (laughs) So I rode over on the scooter and it was a hard conversation, but we had to very gently and kindly and patiently open the Bible and explain to her what we had told her many times that... The Christian worldview of heaven and hell is very different than the Taiwanese worldview. Once you're there, you're there. You can't leave, you can't come and go. And we reminded her, this is why. Now is the time to believe and repent and so on. And it ended up being a great conversation, but we were reminded she had never fully left her old worldview behind. She was engaged in this process. And sometime after that, uh, one of the other women in our church, her father passed away. I was asked to do the funeral. He wasn't a Christian. And so we did it in a uh, hospital garage uh, parking lot because they were poor. Near the end of the funeral, they were about to close the casket. And, of course, I got a special request. And this time they said, Thomas, we've got a 12-pack of ice-cold Taiwan beer, and we want to put that in this casket. Could Daddy like to drink it? And we want to send that beer to him in the afterlife. What do you think? And so I had to, again, gently and kindly explain to them that that's not going to work. And we were reminded over and over and over in our little church that these people that we had invested in for years, teaching them the Bible and theology, and I promise we did teach them, yet when life circumstances hit, they would always revert back to their old ways of thinking because they needed more time to engage in this process. And so Dr. Jones says, you know, the first temptation for the blind person is just to think that they got this, but they need a little more time. And the second one is just to give up. And anyone who's been involved in mission, whether it's domestic or international, knows this is certainly the case. You can invest in people for years, and for whatever reason, they just walk away. And so these examples, I think, help us understand why mission is such a long process, and look, it's not rocket science. Everybody in this room understands it's not easy, and yet, if I were to be honest, if I look in my own heart, if I talk to other missionaries, if I observe uh, mission organizations and sending churches, sometimes we're a bit discouraged, a little downtrodden, a little bummed out and burned out, because after all the money and effort we put into world mission, We don't always get those rapid quick results that we want. Read modern missionary planning, uh, church planning literature, go into a bookstore and you'll see key words like this, speed, multiplication, church planning movements that plant movements that double and quadruple and it sounds amazing and there are places in the world where it happens and we pray it happens more but I'd be willing to bet this morning during Sunday school if you talk to some of your missionaries, for most of us, it doesn't happen that fast or even at all, after years and years of faithful service among an unreached people group. We experience people fighting with God, resisting God. We're disoriented, perhaps a bit grumpy, and tempted to abandon the mission. Mark 8, I believe, is here partly to challenge us that this commitment to mission is going to take a long-term commitment. It can't be done in the short haul. It's going to take a long-term commitment by you, the prayer warriors, and the partners, by us as the missionaries and the organizations as we work together as ordinary people engaged in a process to bring the blind to Jesus. Now, thirdly, we've seen the people in the process, but this is my favorite part. I want us to notice the purpose, and we'll see it in verse 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I want you to notice that Jesus intentionally takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And you can pronounce it that way because it's partly named after Caesar. Uh, Caesar Augustus as well as Philip the Tetrarch. But this what we know was a 25-mile hike away. Now, now that I'm midlife, I have to do 10Ks to try to stay in shape. And so uh, that's about six miles, and my legs are sore. This is 25 miles. Why in the world would Jesus take these guys on a 25-mile hike on the road to, of all places, Caesarea Philippi? This was a place that represented paganism. It was named after Caesar, after all. It represented idolatry, represents all things opposed to the God of the Bible. And get this, for Jews, for the Messiah to take his students on a road to Caesarea Philippi to open their eyes, this would be a shocking way to do it. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus does because he's hinting that his purpose is going to be international in scope. Notice again the confusion regarding who Jesus is in verse 27 through 28. Was he a good teacher? Was he a prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist? Uh, But Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? And in all the gospels, it's an emphatic you. Who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter gets it. He goes, you know, you're the Christ. And the eyes of this disciple are open. Now, if you've grown up at a good church like Second, perhaps you uh, are so familiar with this passage, you forget what a big deal it actually is, and uh, the famous author N.T. Wright he he puts it this way: for the disciples, for particularly Peter, to say this confession that you are the Christ, it was politically dangerous and theologically risky. I like that: politically dangerous and theologically risky to claim that Jesus. Is the true king of Israel, not Caesar, the final heir to the throne of David, the one before whom Herod, Antipas, and all other would-be Jewish princelings are just shabby little imposters? Politically dangerous, theologically risky, and yet Peter now says it out loud. And what we're going to see is that this confession becomes very central to the purpose and the mission of the Messiah. If you're familiar with Matthew's account, you'll know he expands on it a little bit. And it goes something like this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. I had read this most of my life, and I, I really missed what was going on. The picture here is of the church on the offense, not the defense, Perhaps imagine a huge, ancient battering ram, you know, those things, big, long block of wood, takes maybe 30, 40 big, strong men to pick it up. That's the church. That's the picture of the church. Hell, or Hades in Greek, literally means not to see, refers to this unseen spiritual world where Satan and all his demons go around to the unreached peoples and try to deceive them and prevent them from hearing the gospel. And so get this, it is the church's job, it is our mission to attack and lay siege to the strongholds of the evil one. It is our job, and you just imagine this church is this battering ram with our confession, and on the count of one, two, three, we take that confession to the unreached peoples of the world, to the unengaged peoples of the world, to the hardest places to get to, and we proclaim the crucified resurrected and risen Messiah, the one who was sent to satisfy, who was raised to rule, and we can say together that indeed, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the mission of the church on the offense, and the promise is just as amazing. The gates of hell are going to fall flat. We're on the winning team, and the imagery, I believe, is a challenge to us if we were to reflect a moment on our finances, on our prayer lives, on how we use our time and our spiritual gifts, are they aligned with God's great mission to the world? If someone were to look at your life, could they say, You're living on the offense for Jesus? Well, we've considered the people, the process, the purpose, and lastly, the pain. We can't consider these verses in depth because of time, but notice the mission will be painful and it's a twofold mission, or a twofold pain. Now, I'm aware that talking about pain is not a great way to recruit people this weekend, but it is what the text says, and I'll just read 31 through 33. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said it all plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And if we're honest, nobody likes a painful mission. As one commentator put it, convinced of his divine person, now these disciples are struggling with the divine plan. Peter clearly wanted Jesus to avoid pain, which got him the strong rebuke. But Jesus knew far too well that pain was going to be an absolutely essential part of the mission. Not so much the physical pain, but the spiritual pain of bearing God's wrath You see, our spiritual blindness is so severe, it is completely incurable on our own. And in my 13 years of experience in Taiwan, this is probably the thing that people struggle with the most. They don't realize how blind they really are. But spiritually, you are blind as a bat. We often fail to realize this because we don't take sin that seriously. But God does. Sin offends God, it separates us from him, and we can't fix the problem on, the, on our own because we're the problem. And so you see, the cure can't come from within us. No amount of good works is gonna do it. If I'm true to, true to the true Thomas, that's not gonna work. The cure can't come from within. It's gotta come from without. And Christianity, truly unique among the religions of the world, says that the only way that you and I will ever see the light is if Jesus Christ Faces the darkness for us. And friends, that's exactly what he did on the cross. If you'll remember that day, that Friday afternoon, when he marched up the hill called Golgotha, and his hands and his feet were nailed to a wooden cross, do you remember what happened from the hours of noon to three? Darkness came over the sky. And it wasn't just that darkness that Jesus had to face. Around 3 p.m., he yelled out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the creator God of the universe abandoned his own son so that if you trust in Jesus, he'll never have to abandon you. And that is the good news of the gospel, but it's also the pain that the Messiah had to face. And then we're going to find not only was it painful for the Messiah, but here's the challenge for us. It was painful for his messengers. They too will take up a cross. You'll see that in verse 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he moves on. Peter might have misunderstood the cross on that day, on that 25-mile hike to the road to Caesarea Philippi. But Peter, you see, would eventually get it. And this is what's amazing about the Bible. Jesus was actively working in the heart of Peter already. Because if you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, who was it that stood up that day and, and proclaimed this crucified Messiah? It was Peter. He would eventually get it. He would understand that the pattern of Christ, and by extension, the pattern of Christ's followers, was first suffering and then glory. Some of you are familiar with the story of the missionary Henry Morrison, and he had labored nearly 40 years on the continent of Africa, and just a, a lot of labor, a lot of work. And he and his wife decided to retire, and they were on a ship coming from Africa across the Atlantic back into New York City. And as they approached, as the story goes, they saw thousands of people, thousands uh, waving flags and singing and dancing. And uh, I think there was even a live band. And Henry looked at his wife and he said, man, now this is what I call a homecoming. You know, after 40 years, 40 years of faithful service, I'm loving this. But what poor old Henry didn't know was that President Teddy Roosevelt was also on the boat. Coming back from a big game hunting trip. And you see, Henry realized, oh, man. The party was for him. And so he and his wife, they got off the boat. They got in their little old clunker car and drove in to their one-bedroom apartment and retired from the mission field after 40 years. And as you can imagine, he was a bit of a bitter man. You know, he said this Roosevelt guy gets, you know, all these uh, people cheering and dancing. I mean, Roosevelt even got the live band and we get nothing. And so he becomes very bitter. And you see, Henry was facing the pain of taking up his cross, 40 years of sacrifices, it's a long time, had made, he now just felt unacknowledged. He felt there were feelings of loss. Perhaps it reminded Henry of all the the many setbacks and misunderstandings and disappointments that will always accompany a life of mission. And so his wife just told him, Henry, you got to pray about this. You know, you're not going to be any good to anybody if you are bitter like this. So he said, all right. So he went off and prayed. And when he came back, his wife said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, the truth is it was pretty good. I was very honest with God. I think I yelled a bit, and the Lord wiped away some tears. But there was a point, you know, where I felt as if the Lord put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Henry, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Brothers and sisters, despite the promised pain that you and I will face in God's great mission to the world, We can carry on generously praying and giving and going, knowing that Jesus Christ is worth it and we are not home yet. We carry on because our neighbors and the nations of this world have been confused and blinded by the God of this age. And unless we're willing to get involved in some way, they too could end up like that Southwest Airlines jet at the wrong destination, but this time For eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you you have given us the opportunity to be the people of mission. Would you help us as we gain patience to engage this long term process of making disciples? Would you grip our hearts with your purpose? Keep us on the offense. Keep us proclaiming the truth that you are the Christ. And give us endurance as we face the pain, knowing that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, because we're not home yet. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.